So, we are in John. For those of you who have been uh, keeping track, uh, and we're going to be in John for a little while yet, and we're going to be in John chapter 15. John chapter 15. So, you'll recall that over the course of our study, uh, we've looked at a lot of the um, statements which are called the I am statements. Uh, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the good shepherd and so on. Well, today we have the last of the I am statements. uh, And verse 1 of chapter 15 of John says, I am the true vine. I am the true vine. And unlike all the other I am statements, we have uh, some extra information here because he goes on to say, and my father is the vine dresser. I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. So we've talked about that Jesus was um, giving this, what's called the farewell discourse, uh, his final (coughs) teachings to the disciples um, that began in the upper room uh, as they had um, uh, their uh, last supper, the Passover uh, supper. It had started with the washing of the feet. It had progressed to... um, the breaking of the bread. It had included the departure of Judas, um, uh, the questioning about who is going to betray. Uh, We've talked about that there had been the various questions of the disciples that had uh, served as kind of organizational tools for um, uh, John as he relayed the the teachings there. And then when John 14 finishes up, uh, there's this passage that says, rise, let us go from here. And, of course, there's a little bit of speculation as to what that means. Uh, did that mean Jesus was done, and but the disciples weren't, so the meeting continued? Or did that mean that they did get up and, and start on their way uh, to um, ultimately uh, in the garden uh, where the confrontation is going to have? And for those people who feel that this part of the teaching um, was as they were walking, uh, one of the uh, evidences they used to kind of support that is this topic where Jesus says, I am the true vine, my father is the vine dresser. And they picture him taking one last walk by the temple. Uh, Herod um, the Great Head was known for being, you know, a lot of things. Um, but one of the things he was good at was public works, and he had rebuilt um, a large portions of what was left of the original temple. And one of the uh, things that was part of Herod's temple, and you can look this up, is that there were huge columns on either side of the entrance, and around those columns was carvings of uh, vine. Uh, And it says that uh, there were clusters of grapes as tall as a man that were on this vine. So they picture Jesus, you know, always one to use what was at hand for an object lesson, whether it was a fig tree or or, um, uh, standing on the mount talking to Peter uh, about being in the rock. And some people say, well, you know, he's passing this temple with the vine and... Uh, he says, I am the true vine. My father is the vine dresser. So throughout uh, the Old Testament, um, 
the concept of the vine and the vineyard especially was generally taken to be uh, about the people of Israel. And if I go back to Psalm uh, chapter 80, uh, let's see, beginning in verse 8, it says, You brought a vine out of Egypt, that is the nation, you brought a vine out of Egypt, you drove out the nations, and you planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade. The, cedar, the mighty cedars with its branches. It sent out its branches to the sea, and it shoots to the river. This is how God was the, the planter of the vine, the, the keeper of the vineyard, and this is talking about um, the nation of Israel and as you can put together from um, studies you've had in the past the typical pattern was God was saying I established you I planted you I did everything to prepare you for um, my blessing and you botched it and that was the ongoing pattern here so when Jesus says I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. This was a shift in teaching. No longer was being properly connected to God through being part of his chosen people and his blessed nation, where typically if you wanted to be connected to God, you did it through uh, being part of, of that you know, chosen uh, nation. Here he's saying, I am, am the true vine. It's all through me now, and my father is the vine dresser. He goes on and says, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word I've spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. And throughout this passage, you're going to hear this word, abide in me abide in me, abide in me, abide in me, and six more times, it's 11 times altogether, where this concept of abide in me. And if you don't hear anything else, just understand Jesus wants us to abide in him. And what he, what he is teaching here is that the way we abide in him is by staying connected to him as this true vine. If we are branches off of that vine where we receive our, our, our very sustenance, our energy, everything that comes up from the soil, the, the water, the nutrients, and everything is being collected by and transmitted to us by this true vine. It is the true vine that is giving us life. And it says, there's this concept of bearing fruit in verse 2. So we're connected, and that's part of the abiding process. We're going to talk about that multiple times as we go through this passage. But now, right at the start, we have this topic about bearing fruit. And again, in verse 2, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. So, if Jesus is the true vine and we are these branches that have been 
um, grafted into that vine, um, the purpose of which is we're going to bear fruit. And um, as we read through this, um, a lot of people, um, this, is a, this is a teaching point. Uh, in like any parable or any analogy, you can press things too far. So let me read further and then we'll backtrack. Verse 5, it says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. So, one topic that always comes up from this teaching is, well, what does that mean about these branches that are there with the vine, but then these that aren't producing fruit, these are gathered up and burned? What, what, is, what does that mean? And, of course, there are several different ways to take this. Some people would say, well, uh, these are Christians who have um, become apostate. These are, um, to use some denominations would say, the severely backslidden, right? These are people who have um, so hardened their heart that, that they, you know, in fact, some people will even say nowadays, oh, I'm not a Christian anymore. Uh, people, we might say, they have forsaken the faith. They have turned their back on God and so forth. These are, some people would say, well, that's who is being talked about here. Uh, people who were Christians and then are not Christians. Um, if, to use the churchy terms, um, the pure Arminian family tree of folks uh, would tend to um, adhere to this. Um, are, are people who say that you can, quote, lose your salvation, right? Um, our brothers and sisters, I think, in the Nazarene church, um, some of the holiness um, denominations. Um, and, you know, you can kind of see where this might, at first glance, tend to support uh, something along those lines. But others would say... Eh, you can't carve this teaching out and leave out all the other very clear teaching elsewhere even in John where we've already talked about this security of the believer where we've talked about that you know we're in Jesus hand and and nobody can take you out of my hand and so forth and we're going to see further teaching along that in chapter 17 so you can, you say well you know to say true Christians can become non-Christians um, because they're not bearing enough fruit, it's probably pressing the analogy too far. Other people would say um, this concept that you'll hear taught about, especially in some traditions, about the visible and the invisible church, right? Um, if you saw the old Billy Graham crusades and you saw literally thousands of people uh, coming down front to presumably make a profession of faith, you could imagine that there may be some people who didn't get saved. They went down, somebody said, hey, come, let's go. Um, maybe they were curious, you know, but there may be people who um, just in their heart 
it never they never really put their faith in Christ. They never really had that saving faith. But we don't know who those people are, right? Only God really knows the saved, the true church, um, what people would call the invisible church, um, or the visible church, right? The visible church might be, oh, he's a member of, you know, the Seventh Baptist Church of whatever. Um, we we all know, I'll say it, but I'm sure there are plenty of people on the rolls of various churches, including Baptist churches, who aren't saved, right? And um, some people say that's probably more what this is talking about. People who are peripherally associated with the church, um, who are kind of part of what's been going on, a movement you might think of, uh, there were plenty of people associated with the movement of Jesus, right? Um, and we know that at a certain point, many of those made a choice to back away. Um, so this concept of uh, people who are not bearing fruit and so forth, um, that's probably what this is talking about. The, the, the greater point is, is that if you are a Christian and if you are um, in this vine, you will bear fruit. Now, some are going to bear more than others, but there will be life there. There will be um, uh, a difference. I was camping recently, and uh, it was getting toward the evening, and I went around and was just gathering up some dead twigs and sticks and stuff to start a fire. I saw... Um, uh, a big limb that had fallen over and, and that's what you're looking for, right? You're looking for dead wood that's off the ground. And so this, this is great. And I uh, broke off a couple limbs. They snapped really good. I broke off a really big one. Had to tug a little harder. And then when I got it over to the fire, it, it wasn't burning because it had been harmed by the crack. But there was still some life in this and it was still kind of green and it didn't burn very well. So this was still a green branch. It was still attached to the roots, um, but it, it looked dead. Uh, but it was still it was still alive. So there are going to be some that bear more fruit than others. Um, and part of optimizing his vines and his vineyard is God, the vine dresser, who's going to do some pruning. Right? And uh, it says every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes. Right, so that's every, uh, pretty much means every. And uh, so uh, we're all gonna get pruned. Uh, it's probably not gonna be super pleasant, um, but ultimately it's for our good, but ultimately it's m more for what? His glory, right? Pastor's been talking about, and we've mentioned here, one of the, the chief end of man is glorify God and enjoy him forever. So that's the focus here. Uh, I'm the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. So to a certain degree, the bearing of fruit is, I don't want to say totally passive, but somewhat passive in the sense that as long as you're connected to the vine and allowing Jesus to 
to infuse you with with uh, all that is within him, uh, fruit will will result from that. Um, verse seven. If Jesus is the true vine, and if one of the benefits for us being part of the true vine is that we bear fruit, we, you know, have works that look like the works of Jesus, that we have outcomes that looks like the outcomes of Jesus, and so forth. One of the second things that we can enjoy is confidence when we pray. Verse 7 says, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. This is the second time in a pretty short passage that Jesus has said that we can have confidence when we pray. Uh, we can have confidence when we pray because we're aligned with um, the will of God, and we can have confidence when we pray because we're we're praying as part of a living organism. So we're going to pray as a part of that, um, to change the metaphor a little bit, a part of that family. Uh, we're going to do things for the good of the vine. Uh, and, um, and so we're, we can't help but be influenced by our attachment there. And so we can have confidence when we pray. And here we get to this big verse. By this is my Father glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Um, here we have this concept again. You know, how do you know there are disciples? Um, you know, we said by this you'll know that you're disciples if you love me, if you keep my commandments. Here it says people will know if you bear much fruit. By this is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. I'll say as an aside, with this change in paradigm from looking at the vine of Israel and looking at the vine of Jesus and the change that was made, one commentator made, I thought of, a very, it was a point I had not really considered, um, and I'm, I haven't fully considered it, so I'll put it out there for you to think about. In our various studies, especially those that we have had when we've touched on prophecy, like when we talked about Daniel and so forth, and we talked about trying to put it together in some sort of a framework of understanding on how God has dealt with uh, the nation of Israel and how he will deal with the nation of Israel and this concept as is fairly popular in especially American evangelical circles of um, maintaining support for the current state of Israel under the notion that God still has plans for the nation state of Israel and that um, you know, they have always been God's chosen people, so we should probably hang out and support God's chosen people because we don't want to be on the other side of that. And that's crassly stated, or or not very probably eloquently stated, but that's kind of the general idea, right? And it's been well known that uh, the American evangelical church 
kind of feels um, uh, supportive or in alignment in some ways with the nation of Israel. One commentator kind of said, do we really need to do that? Is that really the proper theological stance? Because if Jesus is saying, I'm the vine now, it's not the nation of Israel anymore. It's not based on the temple. We are literally walking past the temple. We are moving figuratively past the temple. I am that true vine now. And this commentator said, do we really have as much theological support to assume that God is going to do something special for the nation state of Israel and the kind of partner comment was that um, the Christians in Palestine often get the raw deal on some of this pro-Israel stance when many in Israel are just as lost as if they weren't in Israel, right? So and again, I'm not sure I'm really even um, making the point I want to make as well as I want to make it, but it was just eye-opening to me that, that we should always, whatever our stances are, um, we should always bring those into submission of Scripture. And when something like that comes across and, and makes me think, um, that's a good thing. Um, I haven't decided what I'm going to do with it yet, but... It really made me think, okay, well, if he says I'm the true vine, am I all in with that? Does that literally mean nothing else matters? I think it kind of does. Um, so I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to do some reevaluation on that. Um, but I put it out there uh, for you to think about. And if, if those of you already have it figured out, please <laughs> let me off the hook here in a little bit. Um, verse 9. It says, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you could be thinking about one of the most comforting things you could tell someone that you are about to leave, knowing that that love connection is not going to change has to be you know, one of the most comforting and, and reassuring things that you could have uh, been told. Uh, and even today, when we say goodbye to someone, what do we say? I love you. And very often that's the last thing we want them to hear from us. And that's what he says. As a father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. Stay there. Hang out there. Um, don't forget my love. Verse 10. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Um, again, we are not about a legalistic faith. Um, I was reading as part of this concept um, 
as we were talking about these branches that could be thrown in the fire and everything, the, the concepts that come up are uh, the assurance of salvation, the perseverance of the saints, uh, all those uh, sorts of topics. And um, I was reading a, a, a bit of writing by R.C. Sproul, who is just reminding that that the salvation equation is um, there's faith and then on the other side of the, the equation is um, there's justification and then there's works. It is never works on the other side of the equation that results in um, justification, right? Um, now, if there is no faith, then you're not going to have any works. Um, but uh, And we know that from, from James. Uh, so this keeping my commandments, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. This is not talking about some sort of legalistic transaction, that if you don't keep a commandment, then you're not part of the vine. It's just that when you're connected to the vine, you are going to be inclined to do the things that um, you would be um, expected to do. And, and that's, uh, that's the gist of what he's saying here. Uh, I was talking with a patient uh, a while back who um, I think, to be generous, I think he had been beaten down by so many medical illnesses that he had started to become kind of bitter and I'd seen this happen and he was getting very irritable about things and he gave an example of when he had gotten really upset with one of his children um, and uh, the way that he had handled that discipline and his justification was how annoyed he was that his son wasn't doing what he wanted him to do and um, I said uh, you know, you can, you can force him to do what you want to do, but that authority only works when you're in the room. But if you have that authority that comes because he loves you, then that works no matter where you are. And, and that's kind of what I think of when I read this passage. If we're thinking about who we are in Christ and how we are abiding in that vine and his love for us and our love for him, we are going to be inclined to make every effort to, to do that because we love him, right? Uh, not because we're told to, but because it's what you would do, you know, and that's you know, I think that's what we would ultimately want from our children is that they would do the right thing because they want to do the right thing and maybe please us, not because they're going to get caught, right? And um, which, I guess you would say, which authority is more powerful? Um, which, which can extend beyond time and distance? Um, it's, this, it's this authority that's based in love that's, I think, way more powerful. Um, and then finally, I guess this is where we'll stop for the day. 
Verse 11, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. I think it's, it's interesting that joy gets in here because, I mean, I, I don't know what we think of the disciples. Sometimes we think of them as, I think of them as just, you know, it might be harsh to say at times they were like the Three Stooges, but um, at times they did seem a bit dense. Now we have the advantage, right? Because we know how the story turns out, but sometimes they weren't really quick to, to, um, to catch on. Um, but when he says, these things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you, they at least had to have known that things were winding down. Right, he's been very upfront about the cross, about how he's going to be lifted up in a cruci- uh, crucifixion way. Uh, I think they got it that this was not going to be a glory kingdom uh, on this earth. Um, so even they were starting to to understand, and that had to have had a somber over- overtone to this. And and they could tell that he was saying goodbye, but yet. Um, he says here, the things I'm telling you, it's, it's that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. And as many people have said, uh, joy is different than happiness. Um, it probably wasn't original with him, but I heard Kirk Franklin say, um, if, you gotta be, if you're going to be happy, it's because something has to be happening. Um, but happiness um, might require something happening uh, but joy doesn't, and uh, it can be independent of the circumstances, uh, and that's what Jesus is talking about here. So, part of the final farewell. Um, love is going to continue. Verse 12, um, we'll probably pick up here next week. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. And uh, just, it seems like the closer we get to the end of the book, the familiarity of these passages and the power of the passages just continues to build. And um, so I think that's where we are. Uh, If you have questions about this notion of the security of the believer, your assurance of salvation, or those sorts of things, um, see me later. Um, Pastor Sproul said in his book when he would encounter someone who... um, was questioning this, he said he would ask them three questions. And one question was, um, do you love Jesus perfectly? And he said he had never had anybody that said, no, I, or that, yes, I love Jesus perfectly. They would say, no, you know, of course I don't. And then the next question would be, uh, do you love Jesus as much as you should? And he said, very few people would say, no, I don't. And then he would say, well, do you love Jesus at all? And they would say, well, yes, I love Jesus. And his contention was that um, that the true Christian is going to say, yes, I love Jesus. Because, because that is so much a part of... of um, it's so much a part of being a Christian, uh, as as uh, put in this particular passage. Um, 
lot of people may love the concept, but when you love the person of Jesus, that's the mark of a Christian. And I thought that was really pretty good. All right, comments? The one thing I've always thought about in that passage about salvation and being secure is that a lot of people, it's going with the concept, they have it in their head, but it doesn't reach their heart to know the person. And I think that might be some of the mm-hmm. points he's talking about here. Yep. All right, well, let's close. Father, we thank you that you have called us. Um, You have um, brought us uh, to this point of of saving faith and that as a result, we can be part of this true vine. We pray that you'd give us um, uh, fruit, uh, that you would uh, give us um, growth, that you would um, prune us as you... Uh, see fit that it would all be for your glory and that as a result of that we could share in your love and share in your joy Uh, in Jesus name Amen thanks everybody